Welcome. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Eric Brown. I work here at the Institute, and I'm very happy to glad that we can convene this panel. This is not the first panel that we've convened on the situation in Xinjiang, um, but it has the situation there has continued to deteriorate since the start of the year. Um, I'm delighted that we have uh, all of our panelists here today, many who have come from far away to be with us, uh, to give some perspective. Uh, for the last 16 years, the Chinese Communist Party has been telling the Chinese people and the world at large that it is waging its own war on terrorism in the Uyghur homeland of Xinjiang, known to Uyghurs as East Turkestan. Xinjiang has since become the most heavily garrisoned and surveilled part of the People's Republic of China. As many as one million Uyghurs are detained in the Communist Party's political re-education camps, which have largely been built up since the start of the beginning of the year where they have been subject, in many cases, to torture, medical maltreatment, and other forms of abuse. Meanwhile, the stability of the region has become essential for PRC's strategic One Belt, One Road initiative, and the Communist Party has used its influence around the world to stifle criticism of the human rights emergency in Xinjiang that it has created. What is at stake for the Chinese Communist Party in Xinjiang? How has the PRC's conduct and repression in Xinjiang affected its foreign relations, including with Pakistan, the countries of Central Asia, and the Middle East? What do we know about the policy debates among Chinese authorities and the people of China concerning Xinjiang, and what, if any, are the dissenting viewpoints? What does the PRC's conduct in Xinjiang tell us about the nature of the Communist Party's power, both at home and the PRC's ambitions to transform itself into a world power? Delighted, as I said, um, to have a number of guests from afar. Michael Clark, uh, anybody who has undertaken to learn something about Xinjiang will know his byline. He's contributed, developed a number of great uh, essays and books and edited volumes over the years. Just recently, um, he has edited uh, this new volume, uh, Terrorism and Counterterrorism in China, which is an enormously timely book. Uh, it makes a major contribution to the academic study of both PRC's perceptions on terrorism and its tactics and its, uh, its, its, uh, its objectives, as well as the situation in Xinjiang and how this has affected PRC's uh, conduct elsewhere around the world. Um, uh, Dr. Clark is, of course, an associate professor at the Australian National University, and we're delighted to have him. We also have two contributors to the book. Uh, uh, Sean Roberts, uh, who I'm delighted to welcome back. He's from the George Washington University. And Andrew Small, who's very much well-known here in Washington, D.C., is a senior transatlantic fellow at the German Marshall Fund. I'm also delighted to have back Luisa Grievy, who is currently serving as the Director of External Affairs at the Uyghur Human Rights Project. And, and, and Luisa has been studying and working on this issue for, for many, many years now. And I'm also delighted to have uh, Rushan Abbas, who is a former journalist with Radio Free Asia, uh, founder of the One Voice, One Step Initiative, and is a prominent uh, Uyghur American who will help us to understand a little bit of how this crisis in Xinjiang is affecting us here in the United States and Americans here in the United States. So with that, uh, welcome. And uh, we'll begin with Dr. Clark. 
Thank you. Uh, th thanks, Eric, for the, for the very kind uh, introduction and also for, for hosting um, the event today. Um, I just wanted to begin by, by briefly giving uh, the audience uh, an overview uh, for regarding the rationale um, for, for the new book and the focus and the approaches to it before then dipping briefly into uh, my own contribution uh, to, to this particular book. Um, so the question um, that I posed when I initially uh, developed a, a, a conference at my home institution at the National Security College at, at ANU uh, was, was essentially this question of, of look, putting China's approach to terrorism and counterterrorism essentially in comparative perspective. Um, in much of the post 9-11 literature on terrorism and counterterrorism, China was largely absent uh, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a factor or, or, a, uh, or a, as an actor of analysis. A major critique of uh, major streams of counterterrorism, of course, uh, waged by the United States and others around the world after 9-11, has essentially been about privileging national security uh, in the name of counterterrorism over other uh, particularly pressing issues, whether they be human rights or, 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 or socioeconomic development. Um, this, of course, is, has been amplified in the Chinese context. Uh, given that China's uh, issues and concerns with respect to terrorism uh, are primarily shaped by a number of core themes specifically related to Xinjiang or East Turkestan. Uh, one is the long history of Chinese attempts at the integration, modernization of, of what has been a traditionally a frontier region for China-based states. Uh, the second broad theme uh, has been claims consistent claims by the Chinese government since 9-11 of linkages between Uyghur separatism and or terrorism uh, with various forms of radical Islamism in Central Asia, Afghanistan and the Middle East. A third theme that shapes uh, China's approach to terrorism and counterterrorism, certainly in, in more recent years, is China's global presence uh, and its growing footprint in a number of those core regions of, of the globe. So a, a core assumption of, of the approach in this book is that we need to look both domestically and internationally uh, in terms of what are the drivers and motivations of, of China's uh, approach to terrorism and counterterrorism. In terms of the conceptual approach, I'd also note um, we draw in particular some inspiration from uh, the critical terrorism studies literature. In particular, uh, one particular stream that looks at the need to move away from an actor-based uh, analysis of terrorism towards an action-based one. So here this suggests that terrorism is not the action of any particular type of group or of actors, uh, but rather a method, strategy or tool that can be deployed by any actor. And this therefore opens up the space to move, uh, move ourselves away uh, or beyond uh, the criticism that most terrorism studies literature privileges the state uh, as a legitimate actor in this context. A uh, second uh, core conceptual approach derived from the critical terrorism studies literature is also an interpretivist approach uh, where we explore the discursive construction of terrorism and how such constructions shape our understandings of the phenomenon itself and those that, that perpetrate it. This is particularly important as it draws attention to the manner in which discursive constructions of terrorism serve to stifle domestic dissent and opposition uh, and or accentuate, quote-unquote, the barbarism of terrorists in order to normalise a recourse to extra-legal responses to them. This is particularly relevant in the Chinese context and informs my own particular contribution uh, to this volume, uh, where I explore the, the effects uh, on China's foreign and domestic policy 
of its reframing of Uyghur separatism towards Uyghur terrorism, and in particular the framing of it as a transnational threat uh, and the way in which this has uh, affected China's approach. There are a number of phases in this development. In the pre-9-11 period, it's remarkable to note uh, the way in which the Chinese Communist Party and uh, the Chinese state consistently framed episodes of unrest in Xinjiang, for instance, during the 1990s, primarily as a splittist one, i.e. a separatist one, not as a terrorist uh, threat in and of itself. This, of course, is entirely reframed after 9-11, and, and Sean has, has written much, much about this, uh, is, becomes definitively reframed by the party as Uyghur terrorism after 9-11. So here we have a, a widespread discourse, consistent discourse, uh, since that point in time that paints episodes of unrest and violence in Xinjiang as the work of extremists uh, with connections to so-called hostile external forces. This shift in narrative has had a number of important effects. Domestically, uh, it, the reframing of uh, Uyghur separatism as Uyghur terrorism uh, has in fact served as a cognitive threat amplifier for the Chinese state. Uh, where we have key implications for, for Uyghur identity and also the conditions of socioeconomic development in the uh, Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region itself. In terms of China's war on terror, terror itself, however, the most important uh, trend here uh, of the shift or reframing uh, of, of the nature of the threat uh, has been the development of uh, the well-documented high-tech security state in the region and the focus on so-called de-extremification policies, and the most egregious example of which um, we've, we've seen, of course, is the, the so-called re-education camps uh, throughout Xinjiang. In terms of foreign policy, there's also been a number of important implications. I'll just note a couple, because um, some of the, the other panelists will, will speak uh, to some of these. The most important trend here, I think, relates specifically to China's diplomacy, security diplomacy, in Central Asia uh, and the wider, the wider uh, Eurasian region. And particularly important here is the way in which the, the Uyghur terrorist narrative has been embedded in China's multilateral diplomacy in the region, particularly through the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. Here we have an organization that has embedded uh, what has been termed a status multilateralism uh, in the region, which is primarily about the protection of sovereignty, borders, and regime security which very much reflects China's core interests vis-a-vis uh, -vis, uh, Xinjiang itself. And this has been expressed practically through uh, the development of wider uh, SCO counterterrorism cooperation in a variety of fields, uh, including a counterterrorism convention signed in, in 2009. So just to conclude before handing to, to Sean, um, I, I wrap up my contribution in this book by noting a, a number of core, core trends and outcomes uh, as a result of this reframing of, of the Uyghur threat, in inverted commas, as a transnational, transnational one. It reflects very much the Chinese state's uh, uh, discursive framing of Uyghur identity as almost a, a, a latent threat uh, in and of itself to the Chinese state and its interests in Xinjiang. We have a securitization very clearly of Uyghur ethnic identity as expressed in the, the re-education camps. More broadly, uh, in speaking to this theme of what, what China's approach to counterterrorism tells us about the nature of the Chinese state, I think it suggests uh, uh, one particularly important issue, and that is 
the Chinese state under Xi Jinping increasingly blurs lines between what we might term in the West state security or regime security and national security, where the two become uh, very much united in the party's perceptions. Sean. Thank you. Sean. All right. Um, my chapter in the book uh, focuses on the PRC's crafting of a, a narrative of Uyghur terrorism and looks at some of the impacts of that. Um, in particular, I frame this uh, narrative of, as being a self-fulfilling prophecy. And a self-fulfilling prophecy in terms of public policy is when uh, wrongful analysis leads to actions that actually make that analysis come true. Um, so going back to right after September 11th, um, the Chinese government came out with several um, announcements, white papers, and so on, asserting that it faced a serious uh, terrorist threat from Uyghurs. And in particular, these, these white papers outlined a situation where um, all of the Uyghur advocacy groups in diaspora were essentially part of this terrorist threat. And they were aligned with al-Qaeda, funded by al-Qaeda, and had been perpetrating terrorist attacks, planned terrorist attacks, throughout the 1990s in the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region, or the XUAR. Um, looking at that assertion, um, we can see that throughout the 1990s, there were various incidents of violence in the XUAR. But uh, analyzing all of them together, it's very difficult to characterize any of them as um, a, a, uh, a terrorist attack, um, conclusively at least. There's some that could have been terrorist attacks, but even if that was the case, there was no uh, claiming of them as being terrorist attacks and um, uh, no organization that could be seen as perpetrating them. Uh, also, I want to point out that the definition I'm using for terrorism in uh, this context is an attack that's deliberately carried out against civilians is premeditated and has political uh, purposes. Um, much of the chapter, however, focuses on how this narrative that the PRC created early on after September 11th spread over time. Uh, in particular, they focused on a group called the Eastern Turkestan Islamic Movement, uh, which was little known at the time or virtually unknown at the time. Um, and it, it was successful in not only continuing to assert this narrative inside China, but also to spread it internationally. So you had political scientists and, and terrorism experts repeat much of this narrative and uh, plug in the Chinese example in comparative studies of terrorism. Um, and I think this was very problematic and led to a normalization of the idea that there was a serious Uyghur terrorist threat in China. Also, as part of that, both the US and the UN recognized ETIM as a terrorist organization, put them on terrorism watch lists, and that had further implications that were essentially um, reinforcing China's uh, approach to Uyghurs as a terrorist threat. Um, ETIM still still creeps into the news. Um, people still talk about ETM, in, ETIM, including the Chinese government, and they frame all of the terrorist attack, uh, terrorist 
threat that they face as coming from this organization. However, in my own research, I try to unpack what is this group and um, whether they did exist or still exist. And I found that they did exist in the late 1990s into 2001, uh, when, when the US attacked Afghanistan. At that time, there were a very small organization that was trying to train uh, Uyghurs in Afghanistan to start an insurgency within China. Uh, by all accounts, it seems that they were not successful. They maybe had a dozen or so people come through these training camps. Uh, there's no evidence that any of these people ever went back and perpetrated any kind of violence inside the XUAR. And the leader of ETIM, um, Hassan Masoom, was killed in 2003 in Pakistan. And with that, essentially, this organization ceased to exist in 2003. And we don't really hear much about uh, any kind of organized Uyghur militant group until 2005, when we start to see YouTube videos coming out of a group called the Turkestan Islamic Party, or TIP. And a lot of the studies subsequently have conflated these two groups. Uh, there is some connection, but um, essentially they're very different organizations. ETIM never was able to uh, uh, establish a, a constructive relationship with Al-Qaeda, which felt that they were just focused on China and not interested in global jihad. Uh, TIP was actually an organization um, which maybe only had for a long time one person in it. Um, and it was somebody who had been associated with uh, ETIM. Um, his name is Abdul Haq. And um, he was the one person in these YouTube videos. And we saw YouTube videos going to the Beijing Olympics showing uh, explosions in China and threatening that there was going to be Uyghur terrorist attacks um, during the Olympics, which there were not, of course. Um, and my analysis, I mean, we, we don't have a lot of information about this group, but my analysis suggests that it was likely a shell organization connected to Al-Qaeda that was trying to recruit Uyghurs to Al-Qaeda. And it was that was basically what this organization was through uh, until about 2013. And then, in 2013, we find this organization in Syria actually uh, perpetrating violence, not necessarily terrorism, but um, actually fighting more of a conventional war in Syria. And um, the group reemerges as, as an actual army. But the interesting part about that is that a lot of the reason that they became a real army is that uh, through the repression, related to counterterrorism policies in the XUAR um, throughout the 2000s, we started to see a mass exodus of Uyghurs out of China, particularly after 2009 and the um, unrest in Urumqi. And there were um, human trafficking networks bringing Uyghurs through Southeast Asia. And through that network, there were people who became recruited to uh, TIP in Syria. Uh, and most of them were recruited in Turkey, and there's even some question about whether um, Turkey has facilitated the movement of some of these Uyghurs there, uh, because they're fighting uh, in the same area that um, 
Turkish groups are also fighting. Um, so my general point about trying to unpack this narrative is that we see uh, uh, in 2001, there's no viable Uyghur violent insurgency within the XUAR. There is dissent. Um, surely many Uyghurs have separatist aspirations, but there's no organized uh, insurgency, no organized uh, group that's going to push that within China. Uh, by uh, the present day, now you have an actual army of Uyghurs who have been trained. And I've spoke to several of um, the Uyghurs who fought in Syria and then have come out to Turkey. And they all explain that their whole goal is to be able to fight a war against China. Now, it's very unlikely that they would be able to get back into China, particularly now, uh, given the situation in the XUAR and the tight security. But uh, as Michael pointed out, there's a lot of linkages to what's happening in the XUAR and the Belt and Road Initiative. And China has a lot of interests outside, um, outside in Central Asia and South Asia where returning fighters could actually um, have impact. Uh, so that's what I'll, I'll say right now. I'd be glad to hear questions. And I encourage everybody to try to get a copy of the book and read the, uh, uh, the whole argument. Andrew. Right, thanks, Eric. And thanks for the chance to join this um, uh, panel and, and the, the essay collection. Um, so clearly, China's overwhelming focus um, on counterterrorism remains um, internal and on Xinjiang itself. But my remarks are going to focus on uh, the foreign policy dimensions of, of some of what China is, is up to. Uh, the argument that the, the book chapter makes is basically that uh, China's approach to terrorism has been conditioned by its geography and by its partners. Um, and in the last few years, particularly as a result of the conflict in Syria, we've seen probably the biggest set of changes in that regard uh, since the late 1990s. For the better part of two decades, Afghanistan and Pakistan essentially provided the main focal points uh, for China in this regard. The group debatably known as ETIM uh, clearly did have um, uh, camps in Taliban-run Afghanistan. And after the US invasion, Pakistan's federally administered tribal areas um, provided the base for whatever remnants of the group um, were there, um, which subsequently emerged, as Sean um, talked about, as the uh, Turkestan Islamic Party. Um, and it was in Pakistan and Afghanistan more generally beyond uh, the TIP, ETIM question, uh, where the most capable transnational groups and militant organizations were largely based. And the big advantage that China had in this regard was the special role played by its, uh, by its closest security partner, Pakistan. And there were a few unstated principles that I think guided Chinese policy, Chinese government policy across this period of time uh, through the 2000s, the late 90s. Uh, first of all, was that China should make sure that it doesn't become a top tier target for any of the principal groups operating in the region, whether that's outright terrorist organizations, militant groups, or their sympathizers or supporters, the Taliban, Al-Qaeda, Kashmiri groups, and so on that China can and should reach deals with these groups over Xinjiang and over their backing to any of the groups that do target China, that China shouldn't take direct action itself against any of these broader groups, and it should be careful about its positioning and cooperation with anyone that does, and that counterterrorism policy, generally speaking, should be almost entirely Uyghur-focused. The message to almost everyone else was, we don't have to be enemies as long as you, don't, as long as you leave us alone yourselves, and you don't, don't back our enemies. We won't support you, but we'll only do the bare minimum against you. 
And for the most part, it has to be said that in some important ways, uh, China's approach uh, worked. Um, a deal was reached with the Taliban over the status of ETIM and attacks from Afghan territory. Uh, Osama bin Laden's very few statements about China were remarkably conciliatory sounding if you, if you go back and look at them. And TIP, um, insofar as I would agree, operated in an extremely modest way, um, functioned under incredibly restricted conditions in, in North Waziristan. Um, and this is partly because the local and global priorities for a number of these other groups uh, didn't include China, um, and the Uyghur cause itself was often relatively marginal for them. Uh, but the other element of this was Pakistan. Across this entire period of time, uh, the state that was at the center of uh, many of the region's militant networks consistently sought to ensure that its all-weather friend, China, uh, did not become a priority target for any of these groups. It used its influence to broker relationships, to dissuade these groups from concerning themselves with China, um, and it took direct action in a number of cases uh, when necessary, including killing um, Hassan Masum in South Waziristan in, in 2003. Groups operating in the region knew that if they targeted China, they risked becoming a target for Pakistan too. So weakened uh, was ETIM um, in the early to mid-2000s um, that at precisely the moment where uh, China was winning these designations at the UN and from the United States, you had very serious questions, as, as Sean suggested, about whether the group meaningfully existed at all. Um, the numbers, whether it was one or whether it was, um, uh, uh, whether it was a little bit more than that, um, uh, nonetheless, it was extremely small. They were dependent on larger, more capable groups, such as the Islamic movement of Uzbekistan, and they had very little autonomous space in which to act. Um, even later on, when they were able to generate propaganda materials from around 2008, maybe, maybe a little earlier, uh, the capacity to launch attacks in China or on Chinese targets anywhere else was extremely limited, and there's very little evidence of their uh, role in any of the attacks on the Chinese mainland. These conditions have all now significantly shifted. Um, in South Asia, Pakistan's capacity to control militancy in its neighborhood, uh, particularly since the rise of uh, the TTP, um, uh, has been eroded. Pakistan itself is no longer the home of TIP. Uh, since the Pakistani army's Zabayazab operation, um, which displaced the, the, the small TIP presence in Fatah, um, it now means that after 15 years of uh, operating in, Af in Pakistan, the group's leadership, at least, is now centered, it, it appears, in Afghanistan again. Um, but as Sean mentioned, the principal theater for the TIP has also uh, moved. The largest number of fighters are in Syria, uh, operating with what, um, in its uh, latest evolution, is Hayat Tahrir al-Sham. Um, and it's not just the numbers that are important uh, here. We can debate how many people there actually are there. As, as, as Sean noted, TIP in Syria has emerged as a more capable and serious group than it ever was in, in Pakistan. It's been involved in major campaigns, better trained, more sophisticated tactics, more credibility among the wider jihadi network, and, and so on. Um, and beyond the TIP itself, the rise of Islamic State um, introduced a major actor to the network of global militant organizations that had fewer qualms than al-Qaeda historically did about making China an explicit target, uh, producing Uyghur and Mandarin uh, language propaganda material and, and so on. Um, and although there are more Uyghurs with um, uh, Nusra Front um, than with IS, the group's reach poses a different set of problems for Chinese security, exemplified by the fact that it's even attracted a small number of Hui recruits um, as well. Uh, more immediately, there are uh, serious worries in, in Beijing about returnees to the region, and by the region I largely mean Asia, not necessarily to China itself, um, and all the more so with the looming showdown in Idlib um, and uh, the rise of IS in Afghanistan. 
Um, and the Syria conflict has reconditioned uh, the recruitment pathways um, with improvements in security on China's borders in uh, South and Central Asia, the main transit routes um, for Uyghurs fleeing repression in Xinjiang since 2009 uh, were through Southeast Asia and Turkey. And I think there's little doubt that there was uh, active Turkish government support uh, for that, at least for, for a period of time. Um, and without going into the Southeast Asian developments, I would note that the Chinese kind of externally focused counterterrorism um, hands used to be primarily focused on Central Asia and South Asia, and are spending substantially more of their time on the Middle East and South Asia too. Um, what does this translate into? Um, broadly speaking, I think we see more of an understanding on, on China's part that it has to take on a more direct role on counterterrorism issues, that it can't entirely outsource or hide behind others, um, and that it has to look at some of the broader conditions in which threats exist, rather than being able to maintain this very narrow focus that it used to have, um, which is, in other words, a weakening of each of the unstated principles that I mentioned um, uh, earlier in, 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 in my remarks. Um, uh, the main Chinese effort um, in this regard is still going to be political, intelligence, diplomatic. They're having to work much more seriously with a wider array of countries and subnational groups, whether it's Southeast Asian intelligence chiefs on extraditions, attempting to broker reconciliation talks with uh, the Taliban in Afghanistan, dealing with Iraqi tribal leaders on hostage negotiations with ISIS, um, and a number of other cases that we can, we, we, we can go into. Um, in this respect, though, China is in a weaker position. It needs more help than when one largely trusted partner, Pakistan, could handle most of these issues for them. Um, in Afghanistan, I would even note that this now means a more active enthusiasm than was ever the case before about a long-term US military presence for counterterrorism purposes. On the military and security side, the anti-terrorism law has opened the door for Chinese security forces to operate in uh, counterterrorism missions overseas. And since that law was passed, we've already seen armed Chinese patrols in Badakhshan, um, which were explicitly tied to counterterrorism. Um, and this is also the location where China is financing the construction of, of an Afghan military base. Um, we also saw what, to me, was an extraordinary debate in China about whether it should be military invo militarily involved in Syria for counterterrorism purposes. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised if the political and logistical circumstances permit it um, that we'll see uh, if, if we saw a serious overseas Chinese counterterrorism mission at some point. And it's quite clear that the PLA's interest um, in overseas counterterrorism missions um, has objectives that go well beyond uh, counterterrorism itself. I also wouldn't be surprised if we saw elements of the Xinjiang AI facial recognition uh, monitoring model encouraged um, and picked up by various other friendly repressive countries at some point. And with more immediate practical impact, all of these developments have, of course, translated into the drive for greater pressure on overseas Uyghur communities and pressure on extraditions. The final point um, I'd make, though, is this greater international activism on China's part on counterterrorism shouldn't necessarily be seen as reflecting uh, greater strength on China's part. This is an area where China's capabilities, its networks, its analytical capacity, and so on, um, are actually very weak. Its vulnerabilities around the world are, in lots of respects, growing, um, and it's more reliant on other parties than uh, the parties that couldn't be described as friends or partners um, in this area than it ever was before. Um, and in the context of the other uh, serious issues that the, um, the speakers who I think we're going to hear from in, 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 in the next uh, round of remarks um, uh, will be raising, um, I would suggest that this leverage, which I, I, I think it is leverage that, that others have, should be borne in 
mind when we're collectively figuring out how to deal with China on, on some of these um, other uh, serious uh, domestic issues that are taking place in Xinjiang. Thank you. Uh, Louisa. Yes. Um, thank you, Eric. Thank you so much for organizing. I'd like to make a couple of points on the turning points in this narrative of terrorism and counterterrorism. I think Michael is exactly right that it, the, among the three evil forces that the Chinese state claims to be facing as a security threat, um, separatism, terrorism, and extremism, in, in fact, the emphasis has moved very decisively from a strong emphasis on separatism as a threat to terrorism. And actually, right now, just in the last year, uh, it's actually an extremism threat more than a terrorism threat. The de it's a de-extremification campaign and not a counterterrorism campaign. But I do want to problematize a little bit uh, the starting point, which is taking for granted that China's threat used to be separatism, but uh, now we have to watch and you know, carefully parse the government's uh, definition of terrorism. Because did it face a separatism threat? You know, if so, it was a thought crime, as Sean points out. Uh, so you know, all three of those terms need to be uh, viewed with equal skepticism without simply assuming there used to be a separatist threat, but then we can um, say that the terrorism threat was, was less strong. And secondly, uh, the theme of the securitization of Uyghur ethnic identity. Extremely important point. What is the timeline for that? It's true that, as Sean points out, uh, the government turned on a dime within, uh, I think, and, you know, it's well laid out in the argument in the book chapter, just about six weeks after, seven weeks after the 9-11 attack, suddenly the white paper appears uh, connecting a Uyghur threat, however defined, with international uh, radical actors. Um, that has nothing to do with the securitization of with ethnic, uh, Uyghur ethnic identity. In fact, the campaign, of course, predates not only the first occurrence of what Sean would define as arguably the first potentially terrorist attack, which is not until 2014, also predates this announcement in 2001 after 9-11. I will quote to you the renowned Xinjiang expert Frederick Starr, noting in congressional testimony in 2005, 13 years ago, there has been a sustained strike-hard maximum pressure campaign, Yenda, in the XUAR since the late 1990s. And this campaign has been focusing on the Uyghur threat. I'll give you another statistic. In 2006, uh, 18,000 Uyghurs were arrested for so-called security threats. And now we come to the turning point. What is happening now since April 2017th or since August 2014th with the appointment of Chen Chenguo as the party secretary in Xinjiang. So these shocking policies, uh, which horrify everyone who looks at them, can truly by no stretch of the imagination be considered a legitimate response to any concerns about uh, civilian security uh, violent threats. And I'll just mention some features of this campaign, quite apart from the horrifying numbers of people being rounded up. If there are a million people in the camps and two million additional people who are spending their days and sometimes their evenings in uh, so-called daytime political indoctrination classes, coming home only to sleep. And this has been documented by the Chinese Human Rights Defenders Network just in August, uh, based on triangulating a lot of sources. The campaign goes uh, much further in terms of 
securitizing uh, Uyghur identity itself. And this goes from language, campaigns going back 14 years and longer to delegitimize the use of the language to take uh, away the ability of children to speak and even become literate in their own language with the abolition of the use of Uyghur language, of course, in violation of China's own autonomy laws, uh, first in universities and then starting in 2004, already quite a long time ago in elementary schools, and then even a push into the nurseries. Basically, from babyhood, children who go to daycare will not hear Uyghur. That's language, and our organization has issued two in-depth reports on that. Then the promotion of intermarriage, which has gotten a little bit of attention. This has been mostly an initiative, as far as we can tell, from some local governments in Xinjiang, a couple of counties offering on their own initiative 10,000 yen per year for uh, any family that's interracial, none for uh, same race in Xinjiang. Um, and then finally, we have new reports about another stage of life and death and the transmission of cultural identity, which is death and burial. So we know uh, just in April this year, authorities in Hatan set up a surprising number of new uh, cremation centers. They called them burial management centers, certainly part of what the Chinese state has said throughout the country as part of modernizing or sinicizing religion. Uh, but these centers, um, supposedly, which entered in, uh, opened in July 2017, uh, the reason given by one official contacted by Radio Free Asia were, oh, it's part of the four orders that we implement here in local government in Xinjiang. And what are the four orders? Promotion of Chinese-style religion, so sinicization of religion. Encouraging residents to self-report and criticize their own behavior, opposing religious extremism, and expressing gratitude to the Communist Party. So opening these cremation centers was not like in other parts of the country to uh, save valuable urban land. It really was part of the campaign to ensure, to, to remake the culture of the, of the region. So at the very least, the policy of forcing Uyghurs to cremate their dead instead of burying them is an attempt to wipe away another distinctive marker of Uyghur culture. Uh, as one Uyghur analyst put it, controlling burial prevents uh, Uyghur religious figures from preaching on the meaning of life and death, heaven and hell, and thereby controls every aspect of Uyghur life from birth to death. And some have speculated about an even more sinister purpose for such cremation centers. And finally, family separation. I commend uh, Sigal Samuel's report just released yesterday in The Atlantic under a very dramatic headline that really tells the whole story. And I know Rishan will be talking about this. Samuel, uh, uh, Sigal Samuel saying, China's draw-dropping family separation policy, children and parents are being ripped apart on a massive scale. It may rob an entire generation of their Muslim identities. This is certainly what happens when parents are taken away into these indefinite detention camps and the children are left. Are they sent to orphanages? Many are not even allowed to stay with grandparents but are taken by the state. Overall, this gives a picture of a, a policy that is not focused on militancy but is rather focused on identity. So it's now reasonable to ask where, where will this lead? Uh, we don't have any evidence about and no documentation about state policy intentions, what is the end game of the, of the camps and the rest of these policies? Uh, 
But think through the practical choices facing both the local and national governments in China now that they have these people in camps. If you had broken up families, arrested hundreds, possibly thousands of intellectuals and business leaders and entertainment figures, sports stars, taken children away from their parents, brutalized hundreds of thousands of young men, and been responsible for the death in custody of many people, young and old. Uh, we have friends whose parents have already been known to die in these camps. What happens next? Do you allow them to go back home? Do you release them? However, many of them are you know, still in health after several years of this punishing political indoctrination campaign, so-called. So if the state was concerned by threats to stability in Xinjiang while building Belt and Road, while being concerned about the resurgence of religious identity and potentially uh, radical identity, if that was the stated concern, what happens now that an entire generation, uh, actually all generations in Xinjiang, now have every single family has been given more profound and more recent reasons for profound grievances against the state? So it's very hard to imagine a scenario under which this government can ever let these people out of these camps. So this is really the next level, Sean, in terms of the self-fulfilling prophecy. It's not whether we have a band of several hundred or hundreds uh, of people who have been training somehow in hopes of uh, some kind of insurgency. Rather, the government's policies have leapfrogged um, into a direct war upon an entire people. So this profoundly traumatized ethnic group with a strong identity, despite these long-standing assimilation policies, um, is now effectively in the 24-hour custody of the state. Altogether, there are 11 million, according to Chinese statistics. What can it do with them? So as horrified as we are in trying to grapple with these numbers, many places, one out of 10, some places, one out of six adults are in, in a camp. Businesses are shuttered. Children are taken away. But it's not going to be the end of the story. So this is another point, turning point. We, we're trying to acknowledge where we are now. But what if today's crimes are actually precursors of even graver crimes in the future? So the policy implications are really very clear. It cannot be business as usual. Our own American pension funds should not be making profits from the companies that are selling the security equipment uh, that's facilitating this ethnic suppression with the iris scans and all the rest. That includes Huawei, Hikvision, Thermos, Fisher Scientific, and others. The officials responsible cannot be dealt with as ordinary government officials in our diplomacy. Uh, their American sanctioned policy absolutely should be applied. And for academics and researchers, is it business as usual to be working with colleagues in China who may have nothing to do with the policy to the repression in China? Or is it the fact that in, simply in order conduct joint research, to exchange, to maintain friendships and, and collegial relations. Nonetheless, you must remain silent on this horrific situation in Xinjiang where the largest number of, of people ever held in an ethnic containment is happening right now in Xinjiang. Is silence the price to pay for business as usual? Nobody can say we didn't know. So business as usual is a moral abdication for which uh, no estate excuse can now be found. Thanks. Uh, Rushan. Thank you, Eric. Uh, you have shown true leadership in Washington in bringing attention to these issues. 
I'd like to thank the audience uh, for being here today. My name is Rushian Abbas, and I'm not a scholar, but as an Uyghur expat, I have been watching what speakers are describing here today. Um, these days, we hear a lot about Chinese tariffs, but very little about the number one million. One million is more than the entire population of Washington, D.C., and it's the number of innocent Uyghur people who have been forced into Chinese internment camps today. There are over one million innocent Uyghur people who are in the concentration camps today. As the US Commission on China stated, this is the largest mass incarceration of an ethnic group in the world today. China calls the camps vocational training centers, but according to witnesses and the news accounts, vocational training means armed guards, barbed wire, overcrowded rooms, malnutrition, dehydration, poor sanitation. It means being uprooted from home and the family. It means stamping out of culture, identity, and the religion. It means forced indoctrination. It means mental and physical abuse. It sounds like I'm describing concentration camps here, doesn't it? Since Mao's occupation of East Turkestan on 1949, the government has tried relentlessly to destroy Uyghur culture and religion. Uyghurs have been persecuted under, under the label of nationalists, counter-revolutionaries, and the separatists. Following 9-11 tragedy, communist authorities rebranded the effort as a war on terrorism. Today, the entire people of East Turkestan have become the victims of Xi Jinping's signature project, One Belt, One Road Initiative. The entire region is branded. Punishment is cultural and collective. Over a million people in detention are charged with no crimes. Counties, districts, and the neighborhoods are filling quotas. China has characterized all political resistance as Islamic terrorism, and on that pretext developed a surveillance state built on DNA collection, ubiquitous cameras, facial recognition software, and the GPS tracking systems uh, on the vehicles. China has sent to internment camps Dr. Raila Dawood, an international renowned scholar studied in the US, Ablajan Aut Ayub, a pop star, Irfan Hazim, a professional soccer player. University presidents Tashbulat Tiyip and Halmrat Opur. China also sent Mohammed Salah Hajim, a famous scholar who translated Quran from Arabic to Uyghur, and which was done per Chinese government's permission. He was 82 years old and died in the camp. But this isn't happening simply to famous people or the expats. It's happening to my family. My in-laws from Khotan, 
69 and 71 years old farmer and housewife, and the three of their daughters, and a daughter-in-law. They're all housewives raising children, and their husbands of farmers of disappeared since April 2017. My husband, I have not been able to find whereabouts of my in-laws, the entire family. We fear that they all were taken to those internment camps, and we have no idea where my husband's 14 nieces and the nephews today, aged between 3 to 22 years old. We fear that many of them were sent to orphanages in inner China. We also heard Abdrim Idris, my brother-in-law, was sentenced 20 years in jail. Dilnur Enver, a mother of three, came to Istanbul in 2016 with her daughter to study for her master's degree. Two young children, five and seven years old, they were left with their grandparents in Kashgar. In April 2017, her children were taken from their grandparents. As of today, she doesn't know the whereabouts of her children. Mamjan Erkin, a former teacher in East Turkestan, was contacted Chinese police shortly after his arrival in Turkey in 2016. They asked him to spy on the Uyghurs in Turkey and write articles praising the communist state, promised money and a fancy house in Istanbul in return. When he refused, the police threatened to refer him to internet as a terrorist. Is that Interpol? I'm, I'm sorry, Interpol. Sorry. When he refused, they threatened to refer him to Interpol as a terrorist. Mamutian went public to expose this. There are a million stories like this and more disturbing news reports too. Radio Free Asia reports government is constructing massive crematorias in mostly Uyghur populated areas throughout the region, as Luisha just mentioned earlier. It is a warning sign, but so far the world isn't watching. We plead to the world leaders, politicians, NGOs, and the civil societies to be one voice against the communist China's cruelty and to take a step together to end this mass atrocity of today's era. Act now before it's too late. Thank you. I, I have some questions, but I'd like to begin by opening it up uh, to the wider audience. I know many of you have, um, sir, in the front row here. Yeah, the, the mic will come. Thank you. If you could quickly identify yourself. Peter Humphrey, I'm an intelligence analyst and a former diplomat. I went to uh, Kazakhstan late last year, and... Uh, one little known fact is that perhaps 10% of these people that are being arrested and incarcerated are Kazakhs. Maybe more, but no more than 20. Um, in Kazakhstan, this is fairly well known 
and the people on the street are outraged. It's as if China took its biggest gun and shot its foot off. And I think this is perhaps how we solve this problem. Um, because the, the Kazakh man on the street is saying, not one inch on Belton Road until this ends. And it's other Central Asians feeling the same way. Because this comes across as not anti-Uyghur, but as anti-Islam. And uh, collectively, the Central Asian republics, if they, if they stood up against this, I think could be profoundly effective. Um, do you guys agree with that, disagree with that? You think that's a potential pressure point? What can we do to encourage that? Um, yeah, I think this is a really interesting question. Um, uh, one of the, the Central Asian states have been very um, quiet about the Uyghur problem historically. Um, I call it the Uyghur problem in terms of what's happening to Uyghurs in China. They're aware of it. People on the street are aware of it. I do think it's a turning point what's happening to Kazakhs in many respects. I and mean, in one respect is the Chinese government long kind of uh, created a wedge between Uyghurs and Kazakhs within China. And um, I was very surprised to see Kazakhs start to get interned in, in these camps. And that um, is only maybe bringing Kazakhs and Uyghurs closer together. Now, of course, uh, President Nazarbayev in Kazakhstan has so much invested in the relationship with China. But I do feel that his biggest blind spot are Kazakh nationalists, um, because he's an old Communist Party boss. He kind of learned Kazakh as he was as he was president, and he um, you know, now he's quite good Kazakh speaker, but he wasn't when he, in, in 1990. Um, and so he's always been a bit worried about the Kazakh nationalists. And, and the people who are being interned are all relatives, and including some of them actually who, who are Kazakh citizens, but they're at least relatives of a group called the Oroman, who are Kazakh uh, immigrants from China to Kazakhstan. And that was an initiative of Nazarbayev early on in the 90s to uh, increase the Kazakh ethnic population of Kazakhstan. And so that, that group of people is very activated. I mean, I've seen with, I think it's, it's the same I've seen with a lot of Uyghurs who previously were not political uh, Uyghurs who are abroad. Um, they've told me, you know, for a long time I was trying to be quiet about this. I didn't want to have any ramifications for my families, but now people are saying, well, it doesn't matter, so we might as well be vocal about this. And the Oralman in Kazakhstan have become vocal about it. They have an organization that's trying to spread information about it. And I think that's putting, you know, I, I think it's a good thing that it's putting Nazarbayev between a rock and a hard place. Now, I, I, I'm a little bit less optimistic about whether there's going to be serious pushback, but um, I hope so. Uh, and I think Kazakhstan would be the country that, that has the leverage, um, the other ones less so. Um, but Kazakhstan has some serious leverage with China, so they, they certainly could find ways to push back. One thing that we're seeing is that in a number of countries where populations are beginning to hear 
about what's happening in Xinjiang is that there is growing frustration and anger um, and pressure on governments to say something to Beijing. And yet at the same time, the money that BRI is offering to a lot of Belt and Road countries is revealing just how venal a lot of these governments are. Um, Erdogan of Turkey, uh, I think, had a moment of a brief moment of real moral clarity in 2009 when he observed back then that the Uyghurs um, were facing cultural genocide. Uh, I think he understood intuitively that there was something, that, that it was not simply a Chinese war on terrorism, but rather increasingly a war on Uyghur culture and Islam as such. And for a long time, as you know, the Turkish Republic had provided safe haven for civil resistance to the destruction that's been going on in Xinjiang. Uh, in recent years, however, Erdogan uh, has completely stopped calling attention to what's been happening. He himself has backed his country into a strategic and an economic situation where he desperately, I believe, needs BRI funding to maintain his government at home and is angling for it. And as a consequence, we're seeing an enormous amount of pressure in the Uyghur diaspora in Turkey today. Um, if this is able to consummate itself, it will be obviously extremely devastating for the Uyghurs. Um, but in addition to that, it's a prelude to a new restructuring of power across Eurasia. Um, don't discount the, I mean, we can't discount the venality of the ruling regimes around the world and just how attractive um, some of this money is from the Belt and Road Initiative. It does have quite a bit of influence. Um, I guess my, well, I do have one question for Dr. Clark and some of the contributors to the volume. I mean, you've looked at the historical evolution of the securitization strategy. Do you agree with the characterization um, that this has, in fact, become not just a war on terrorism, but as Sean had pointed out shortly after 9-11, I'd say, um, that it has produced a sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy uh, and has increasingly become uh, a, a Chinese Communist Party uh, war on Uyghur culture as such, a war on the thought crime of being different? Um, I'll, I'll jump in on that one first. I mean, I, I would absolutely agree with all of all of that, um, except uh, to, to note a couple of a couple of important points. I think um, that have, have, haven't been touched upon just yet. I mean, the issue of the self-fulfilling prophecy, and Louisa mentioned this as well towards the end of her remarks. I think is abso absolutely spot on. Yet at the same time, as we're willing to criticise and should criticise uh, the Chinese government, and in particular the Chinese Communist Party here. I think we all, all, all have to realise as well that this type of mass-level campaign has un, will have unintended consequences, and we've already seen some of that already. So Louisa also mentioned uh, the development of local government or, or local individual officials' own initiatives. So they've been given essentially a top-down authority to conduct these types of campaigns, which basically gives them an open slaver to, to, to implement them. And if they don't implement them, then they are they will be either punished or disciplined in various ways. 
So these types of campaigns always have unintended consequences like this and feeds into a sort of, again, a self-fulfilling prophecy, but also uh, a sort of a self-perpetuation of the process, which leads me to think anyway that there is no good outcome here in terms of uh, Louise's remark at the end about, you know, what, what does the party state actually do now with these potentially millions of people uh, that, it is, that it is repressing? Um, one way of thinking about this as well is the way in which the party state frames uh, the so-called re-education centres. Um, ostensibly, the goal is transformation through re-education, which harks back, of course, to some of the Maoist-era uh, thought rectification campaigns all the way back to the Yunnan period pre uh, the establishment of the, of, of the PRC. Yet what's, I think, particularly disturbing about this is the alignment of some of those continuities with, continuities with the Maoist mass line campaigns with 21st century technological developments. Uh, so the development of the high-tech uh, security state dominated uh, by uh, high levels of surveillance and also essentially uh, the Chinese state's mining of personal data and that it collects through various measures and using this as a form of so-called predictive policing to intern vast numbers of people. Yeah. In the, I, I would, I would uh, go on to say that, well, two. I guess I'll make two points. One, one in terms of Islamic... I think that um, what's interesting about what's happening in China is it's reflective of, I think, trends around the world where the war on terror has, in a lot of places, started to look more like a war on Islam. You know, I mean, a lot of Muslims early on felt that that was an issue. Um, I think that actually. In many ways, the Bush administration tried to really separate that, and I think also the Obama administration really did. Uh, I think to a certain degree, um, the Trump administration ran on an idea that Islam is part of the problem. Um, we've seen that among a lot of popular pundits, not only in the US, but in Europe. But in China, we're really seeing it play out. So it's been interesting to watch, as I mentioned, that adding Kazakhs to these re-education centers really started to signal an issue about Islam. And we're starting to see it influence, to a certain degree, the Hui population, too. Um, and so there's a sense that isn't, it, isn't Islam the problem? And, and it's, it's certainly uh, evident in the policies that have been undertaken in the last uh, several years in China, where the goal seems to be to strip Uyghurs of religion um, because they feel that that's at the core of it. The other point I'd like to make about uh, the one thing uh, adding to Michael's point about um, the, the things happening now in Xinjiang looking very much like the Cultural Revolution and previous Maoist campaigns I think is true and it, it also looks a lot like some of the things Stalin implemented in the Soviet Union. But the really concerning thing about it is that this is really focused on specific ethnic groups. You know, I think in a lot of countries that have experienced mass repression, people have been able to get over it because everybody experienced it. I can't see this having a positive 
outcome because it's so obviously targeting one group and how is that group ever going to you know look at uh, inclusion in the state as being something that they can deal with um, yeah I just I just reinforce that the, the the way point as well because I think that is the kind of the interesting additional subcurrent that you've seen in the last few years and I think particularly since since Kunming, I mean, I think you had a conception in China that this was a Xinjiang question and uh, uh, a Uyghur question. I think you've particularly seen since since 2014, in addition to all the things that one has to, to, to watch in Xinjiang, a view that says some of the techniques that, and, and approaches that we had previously essentially restricted to Xinjiang should be applied in other locations as well. And Xiadian, of course, in, in, in Yunnan was, was kind of one of the reference points um, uh, for, for, for this um, that you've, you've already seen in the, in the last few years. And of course, it's not taking place in, in the same way or on the same scale or of, um, in, in the same nature as what's happening to the Uyghur population in, in China. But it is morphing into this broader Islam question rather than just a, um, an ethnic Uyghur question. And I, I think this is the other thing to kind of have an additional eye on across China as a whole in terms of how some of these things are, are rolled out, particularly since some of the, the capabilities that have been deployed in, in in Xinjiang um, that, that Michael referenced are also accessible and, and can also be deployed um, uh, elsewhere in the country. Louisa. Just one point, Tibetans. Also, many of the techniques that <coughs> Chen Chenguo brought into Xinjiang were, had been implemented in Tibet. Right. It's not only Islam, certainly it's ethnic. Right, Mike. Yeah, just wanted to jump in and add on to, to Sean's point here in terms of we're thinking about this sort of a, a real change in terms of how we think about uh, previous mass campaigns and how this relates to previous historical examples um, of this kind of thing. Is that the real red flag, I think, should be some of the concerning rhetoric by party officials that has leaked out. Um, framing Uyghur identity and religion in particular as a tumour or a pathology to be eradicated. Uh, I think this speaks volumes about the intent behind behind this program. Sir. Remember. Michael Davison, I'm uh, a fellow at the Woodrow Wilson uh, International Center across the street. Uh, as Louisa pointed out, the, the guy in charge of Xinjiang now learned his craft in Tibet. That's where he was in charge earlier and was using these kinds of policies. Just wondering if people in the panel here have any thoughts on what does this mean for Tibet? Does it mean there's less pressure on Tibet? They're focusing on Muslims now, and Tibetans are less threatening. I know that Sandom Rinpoche, uh, one of the Tibetan leaders, was recently invited to China. Uh, and I know there's initiatives by the Tibetan exiles, uh, the so-called 550 initiative, uh, a big meeting that was just held in India about trying to reach out to China. So I'm just wondering, is there any thoughts on the panel about where, how this connects up with Tibet, which of course has been the other major uh, challenge for China uh, on, the, on its border regions? I spoke with some people in India, northern India, not too long ago from the Tibetan exile community, and they um, clearly stated that pressure has not been alleviated on them in the least. Uh, Tibet is also very much a garrison state within the context of the People's Republic of China. Um, and I, I mean, what they build up there is 
a police state with real infrastructure and, and, and real power behind it. And of course, there's very little opposition and very little support for the Tibetan people as well right now. Yeah. I, I will make a point on the, on the religious uh, dimension. I think um, the Chinese government for a long time in Xinjiang tried to control Islam. Um, you know, they tried to have the concept of a legal religious practice and legal religious practice. You had imams who were authorized by the state. Um, and I think they found it didn't work. I think the Chinese government is still believes that it can control Tibetan Buddhism, particularly as they're thinking about trying to control the succession process for the Dalai Lama. Um, so it's interesting. That's one dimension. The other dimension is Tibetan Buddhism is very popular in the Chinese elite. Um, so there isn't the same attempt, I think, to eradicate Tibetan Buddhism. They want to control it. They certainly want to control Tibetans. But it's a very different dimension in Xinjiang with the basic attempt to obliterate religion completely. Something that Andrew had observed about uh, one of the likely future trends, and we're in fact already seeing it, and I wanted to ask if you could elaborate a little bit, um, that we're beginning to see the export by PRC of the AI-based sort of uh, police surveillance technologies which have enabled this situation in Xinjiang. Uh, could you elaborate a little bit on that? I mean, that, that whole structure and that, 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 that capability is, is, is of interest to a lot of countries around the world. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I think you, you've, you've had some kind of limited cases in, in, which, in, in which this has been applied in practice. I think Zimbabwe is, is, is one of the cases. Um, the, 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 some of this was, was, was being rolled out before in a different way as well, the kind of safe cities and, um, uh, initiative and, and these sorts of things. But, I mean, of course it's appealing to various governments to have the kind of deployment of capabilities uh, that the Chinese state has. And, and, again, this isn't just restricted to autocracies. I mean, I, I think this is the, the, this kind of surveillance capability China's was notably ahead of virtually anyone else on facial recognition and, um, and, and, and some of these sorts of capacities. But with, when this is also coming along with security partnerships, with financing, with um, uh, IT infrastructure, with a whole kind of package that, that is on offer under the auspices of the digital Silk Road and, and some of these sorts of things, um, I, I think you, uh, how far it's been rolled out so far, I think, I mean, in some of the instances, of course, the Chinese companies themselves also want access to the data um, and part of the additional value on the Chinese side and an additional reason for being proactive about it, aside from the kind of um, uh, help provided to repressive capacities, is um, a broader data pool um, for facial recognition purposes. And so there's a kind of proactive um, effort to push some of these uh, things out in, 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 in certain places. But it, it, it's certainly something that I, I, I would expect to see popping up in more and more in a BRI uh, context, even than we've, we've already seen so far. Just to add on to, to Andrew's point there, it's, 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 it's not also just the export of the technology, but it's also, I think, uh, potentially the export of the technique or the strategy behind the technology. Um, so Xi Jinping has openly spoken about recently um, that China should seek to export the system of quote-unquote social management and social credit uh, to the Arab world, for instance. Um, so there's very clear, clear lines here emerging.
Yeah. Sir, here, I'm a second now. Um, thank you very much. My name is Jake Castle, and I'm an undergraduate student at American University. Um, and so I know that as the Syrian government uh, continues its advance in Syria, more uh, of the families of China, of militants of Chinese descent are being under or are being captured by refugee organizations or by the Syrian government. And so my question is, what reintegration process or perceived threat does China have to the families of these militants? Yeah, sure. I, I, I mean, I think um, it's what's happened uh, globally when when people when the U.S. captured several people that they thought might be terrorists who were Uyghurs in Afghanistan or actually in Pakistan um, shortly after two thousand one, uh, and then once they realized they weren't a threat. Um, they didn't want to send them back to China because their their uh, fate in China would be uh, very dire indeed. Um, and so they found other places um, to send them. Now, the Syrian government, I, they are less likely to worry about that. Um, I imagine the Syrian government would send them back to China. Um, Refugee organizations, however, I don't know. I don't know what uh, what they might do. I mean, Turkey is where a lot of the former fighters um, from Syria have returned. Um, they may send them back there as well. Um, but I imagine there'll be a big push from the Chinese government to have them sent back to China. Omar Kanat from Uyghur Human Rights Project. Uh, thank you very much. So I have a question for uh, Michael. So you use the, the term of Uyghur terrorism in your book and also in your statement today. Uh, it's not unjust to use this uh, term uh, because of some isolated incidents, you know, in, uh, in East Turkestan. And it's not very clear whether uh, it, they, uh, they, they were really a terrorist attacks or not. Because your uh, term uh, gave an impression to the people that there is a widespread terrorist activities in East Turkestan, and uh, in reality, there is not. And what's going on? Uh, today in East Turkestan also doesn't have anything to do with the with fight against terrorism or extremism or radicalism. Thank you. Sure. Uh, thank you for, for, for that comment. Um, I, I suppose I should have been a little bit more detailed uh, in my use of the, of the term. Um, as Sean mentioned as well, there are a number of contributions to the book that problematize this very issue. Um, Sean's is one of them, uh, Raffaello Pantucci's chapter as well also looks explicitly at uh, alleged Uyghur connections with al-Qaeda, for instance, in the Middle East. Um, the key issue in terms of the way in which I'm framing this is that if we take as a definition, which is the one essentially that Sean mentioned earlier, 
um, that we all refer to in, in, in the book is that we can, in fact, identify, as you mentioned, a number of isolated incidents that, on those measures, can be defined as terrorism. You are also correct to suggest that there is no real pattern or evidence to suggest that these are the result of an organised organisation residing outside of China, such as the so-called East Turkestan Islamic Movement or the TIP in Syria, for instance. Um, so hopefully, um, if you get a chance to, to read the book, you'll see that we, we are much more uh, nuanced uh, in our approach to, to this issue. Thank you. So in the front row. Thank you. <clears throat> My name is Arnold Zeitlin. I've been teaching in China. Uh, perhaps Ms. Abbas could discuss efforts by the Chinese government to reach out to the Uyghur dispo, dispo, uh, community abroad. Um, since uh, the situation really deteriorated in uh, early of 2016-2017, uh, they have been reaching out to the Uyghurs in all over the world. The Chinese government has been reaching out to the people in the diaspora. Uh, the ones in Turkey are becoming more uh, imminent to threats, like the two examples I give. Uh, they call them up and they ask if uh, uh, they can work for them, like the second example I give, and if they refuse. There are threats about the uh, consequences for their family members back home. And also, um, they make the family members call them. Like the first example I gave, Ms. Dilner Anwar, her seven years old daughter called, uh, text her actually, saying that uh, she must return within two days, otherwise the family will face consequences because she knew what happened with the returnees from Turkey and the, uh, Egypt. The students were taken back, um, and then they disappeared. We don't have uh, any information about their whereabouts. So she decided not to return, and then as a consequence, the uh, kids were taken away from their grandparents. Um, then. Recently, they are reaching out to the people in US, Canada, and also in Europe, Australia, all over the world, asking them to give their uh, IDs, personal IDs, and the car license plates, bank accounts, and also they are using a family members back home uh, as a threat. So people in the diaspora, the Uyghur people, are living in very despair uh, and the, uh, you know, stress, depression. They are reaching out to this far, actually. Even here in the United States. Uh, miss, in the background. My name is Ajahn Sarawalti, and I'm an Uyghur American. And I'd like to ask a question that I think is on the minds of most Uyghurs abroad and in the homeland. I think Louisa brought it up earlier. What next? Is there any hope in sight? Do you think that we'll likely see any sort of international um, intervention into the situation? You painted a very bleak picture today. It seems like everything is going downhill. 
So I just want to know, is there any hope in sight for the Uyghur people in their homelands and those worrying about their loved ones abroad? We've had some clarity recently from the US Congress, as you know. Um, there's been the Magnitsky Act uh, discussion of applying that to a number of number of people involved, although if you ask me, that, that needs to be escalated. Um, there are clearly many people responsible for what's going on in Xinjiang, not only in Urumqi, but also in Beijing. Um, much greater clarity from the United States on this, I think, will possibly help um, other countries uh, uh, find, their own, uh, find their own voice on this issue. Uh, but I'm curious what our, what our panelists think, uh, Luisa in particular. Yes, I mean, there are two stages to this. One question is simply rescue. We, of course, we know through um, very persistent international media coverage that, in fact, some Uyghurs abroad are being punished by having their passports canceled. Um, so it's in, they become um, unable to maintain their visa status when they are abroad. Um, under such stress, feelings of hopelessness and despair, uh, at least there's a hope that they themselves will not be caught into the maw of the machine, even when their nieces and nephews, parents, and everyone else are. So what is the obligation of other countries who have people who are uh, on student visas and, and, and so on? Um, can, they, can there be a policy solution so that um, their visas can be extended indefinitely? At the very least, don't turn away that rescue ship at the port. Uh, that's the immediate action. And then uh, consequences for the Chinese government to change the calculus. Uh, I've painted a picture that it's a, the Chinese government has backed itself into a corner. It now has people on its hands and doesn't know, uh, have anything to do with it. But it's not too late. Absolutely reversing the policy now, uh, perhaps with the help of, of uh, other countries, would be much better uh, than continuing it. Uh, and so consequences in terms of sanctions, in terms of high level, um, you know, there are trade negotiations going on. Why isn't Xinjiang uh, part of that conversation? Sir. Thank you. I'm Leon Weinchalber, a retired member of the U.S. Foreign Service. Given the earlier discussion that made some comparisons with the actions in Tibet, I'm wondering, if, uh, is there any comparison can, that can be made with the earlier Chinese policy of dealing with the Catholic ch ch church in China, where there's an underground Catholic church compared to the so-called official church from the Vatican? Louisa, would you? Yes, that's, uh, this uh, dual policy is, is applies to all religions in China. So um, for a long time, um, at, let's say in the post-Mao era, the idea was uh, you can believe in religion if you belong to an approved church, and you're not an official. And that was honored in the breach, but that has been tightened up under Xi Jinping. So for, at least for the last six years, uh, it has become much more uh, well understood and enforced that if you are a party official, which means, of course, 100 million people, uh, you must uphold the atheist ideals of your party. Um, and so you'll be dismissed if you practice religion. Um, and certainly the, the issue with you know, connection to a foreign uh, authority is exactly the point behind the cynicization of religion policy, which is been one of many things going on under Xi Jinping that uh, has been has been described and, and observed, but it's it's uh, 
a bewildering away, array of political changes and tightening up that's happening. And one of them is the sinicization of religion to remove foreign, supposedly remove foreign influence. Thank you. Thank you. I'm Satoshi Nishihata, uh, Washington correspondent, Happy Science USA. Uh, my questions are a bit similar of former one, but a week ago, uh, Marco Rubio and Christopher Smith uh, uh, urged uh, the Trump administration to in swiftly impose a sanction on Chinese officials regarding this issue. So I have been wondering, so what kind, what kind of role uh, the government of United States and other countries, including especially Japan, the democratic country in, in Asia, uh, can do to, uh, for the, resolu the uh, resolution. So if you have any thought, I would, I would appreciate it. Thank you. I mean, as I mentioned earlier, the Magnitsky Act provides one instrument. Um, a lot of what is happening in Xinjiang is being enabled by the lack of any sort of pushback from the wider, um, from, from other countries. So more leadership, particularly from Tokyo certainly from the United States, from New Delhi, would be extremely useful, I think, and appreciated. American and Japanese technology has largely enabled the police state in Xinjiang and elsewhere. Uh, there's something that the democracies of the greater Asia Pacific need to do to focus on making sure that we control and don't export these technologies to a country like the People's Republic of China um, uh, uh, going forward. I mean, there's a lot of policy work that can be done on that front, but Sean. I also, I mean, I, I feel that in many ways um, the, ir the issue is serious enough and um, very few countries have enough leverage over, over China on their own that this really has to be something um, that a group of countries really push at the UN. Um, you know, it's, we, we've seen, um, the question is whether there's serious leadership from uh, some of the larger, stronger countries, whether you would see uh, some of the Muslim countries also support uh, at least independent investigations about what's happening in these camps and hopefully force a closure of them. Um, I just, I, I hate to depend on the UN. It's a difficult uh, route, but um, I think it's, it's a serious enough issue that really has to be brought up to that level. Yeah, PRC should be asked to defend its egregious behavior in the United Nations at the bare minimum. Ma'am, we have time for a final question. Thank you. Um, I just wonder if anyone has looked at parallels <clears throat> between the treatment of the Uyghurs and the treatment of Aboriginal peoples in many Western countries. Yeah, I mean, I, as a Australia has a, a well-known history uh, of, the, of this, unfortunately. And when Louisa was talking about um, the issue of separation of you know parents from children. Uh, that immediately brought down to mind, I jotted straight down, the stolen generation uh, in Australia. So this refers to a group of Indigenous Aboriginal peoples uh, who were taken away from, from their family and fostered out either to various orphanages run by religious orders and so on and so forth um, from really the late 19th century onwards. Um, and that's taken nearly 50 to 60 years for the Australian government to recognise 
that those events took place. And there was our former Prime Minister, uh, Kevin Rudd, issued a national apology to Indigenous people uh, in 2008. So it's not like we don't know the effects of these kinds of policies. Um, so again, it's cycling back to this issue of what can be done. Um, I think uh, Senator Rubio uh, should be congratulated uh, for, for pushing this forward and showing, showing leadership on this. What needs to happen now, though, is friends and allies of the United States need to chime in as well. And again, my own government has been, I think, uh, silent on this issue for far, far too long. Um, our Department of Foreign Affairs and, and Trade, I know they've been working behind the scenes, but officially there's been no statement, no representation to Chinese counterparts uh, about uh, Australia's criticism of this. Uh, and given our record and our, our history of our own mistakes uh, with uh, Indigenous populations, we should be actually one of the first to do so. Thank you all for coming. And I really want to thank all of our speakers today. Um, uh, I look forward to hosting you all again here in the future. Thank you.